Hi, this is Steve Nerlich. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 93, Spacecraft. Spacecraft are easy to imagine and a lot harder to build. So far, our robotic ones have dared some pretty mighty things, while the human crew containing ones have been making more cautious steps. So let's start with those daring robots. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what is the Parker probe learning about the Sun? The Sun is 99.9% of the entire mass of the solar system, weighing in at 1.9 times 10 to the 30th kilograms, and if you think you can comprehend how much that is, you're kidding yourself. Let's just say it's freakingly hugely massive. Although on a universal scale, it is a fairly unremarkable G-type star, positioned towards the lower end of the Obafjicum range of stellar classes. Still, if you are an evolved, cognitively capable being... Listening to this podcast, it's likely your species arose from a similar stellar system. OBAF stars probably explode too quickly to nurture life, and while those dim K&M dwarfs may have lifetimes that are much longer than our star, they can only warm planets that are within a distance equivalent to the orbit of Mercury, meaning those planets will be mostly tidally locked and sit within close proximity of this star's stellar flare outbursts. So their capacity to support and sustain robust ecosystems also looks to be fairly low, based on our understanding of how life evolved on the one single planet that we know life evolved on. In 2021, our latest solar mission, the Parker Solar Probe, will pass within about 11 million kilometres of the Sun's surface, at each perihelion of its 8th and 9th solar orbits. 11 million kilometres is actually pretty close when you consider Mercury's orbit is 50 million kilometres from the Sun. The Parker probe is scheduled to do at least 26 solar orbits, and during its 22nd to 26th orbits, it will come within 7 million kilometres of the Sun's surface. It's currently unclear what the plan is after the Parker's 26th orbit, but presumably it will just be more of the same if it can remain fully operational after such close solar encounters, and if it still has enough fuel. One of the key objectives of the Parker Solar Probe is to answer the long-standing puzzle of why the solar corona, the Sun's outer atmosphere of hot, tenuous plasma, that becomes visible during a solar eclipse is actually hotter than the surface of the Sun. Now that may sound like a trivial academic pursuit, but consider that we have billions of dollars of hardware in Earth orbit, as well as human beings on board the International Space Station. A big solar flare directed right at Earth could fry the electronics of that billion dollars of hardware and put our astronauts' lives at risk. From our current understanding of how the sun works, such a big solar flare is an inevitable, but also completely unpredictable, event. So, by better understanding how the sun works, we are aiming to protect billion-dollar investments 
as well as people. So while flying to Mars may sound way sexier, it is a very high-risk endeavour with uncertain returns beyond being able to say that we did it and brought back a few rocks. It's way easier to justify the modest funding needed for solar research, which is largely achieved by robotic spacecraft. Anyhow, here's a few things we've learnt so far. At Earth, the solar wind streams past us in a seemingly steady radial flow. But from the Parker Probe's vantage point, we now know the environment of the solar corona is extremely dynamic. The sun's rotation and its chaotic magnetic field lines work to throw out charged plasma particles against the sun's gravity. It's these particles that initially form the corona, and then, as the particles spread out further, the more diffuse solar wind. What we realise now is that that particle outflow spirals outwards in the direction of the sun's rotation, moving as much sideways as it does outwards, and within that region there is considerable magnetic turbulence, including what are called switchbacks, where an outwardly directed magnetic field line momentarily flicks back on itself before continuing outward. Those magnetic switchbacks flick out dense bursts of hot plasma, which add to the general energetic chaos of the solar corona. The court is still out, but this does give some weight to the growing suspicion that it's all that turbulence, chaos, and hence kinetic energy in the corona that explains why it's hotter than the sun's surface. Apart from all that, Parker has discovered evidence of a cosmic dust-free zone extending nearly 6 million kilometres out from the sun because any cosmic dust particles that get closer get vaporised. This finding is not such a surprise, or a finding that just confirms what we might have assumed anyway, but in science, one should never assume. We always need the data to confirm. This is the middle bit. Robots are very good at finding out stuff for us. It might not be the stuff of Hollywood movies, but it is important science stuff, if nothing else. That said, humans aren't too bad at finding out stuff either, and human-containing spacecraft are definitely the stuff of Hollywood movies. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Will there ever really be spacecraft that can travel in deep space, but can also land on planets? Probably the best examples of fictional deep spacecraft that can also land on planets are found in the Star Wars franchise where most spacecraft seem both able to land, as well as zip between stellar systems via hyperspace. Whatever the heck hyperspace is. The obvious advantage of ships like the Millennium Falcon is that you don't have to swap vehicles to go from deep space flight to a surface landing, which saves lots of time, since you can just swoop down to grab fresh supplies from the surface and then immediately continue on your journey. However, there are various complications involved in swooping down to a planet's surface that you don't face when flying through deep space. A planet is also a gravity well, so your deep space propulsion system 
which will mostly involve a main drive to propel you forward and a few lateral thrusters for trajectory corrections, has to deal with a whole bunch of new challenges, where moving down a gravity well mostly involves slowing yourself down until you eventually soft land on the surface. Achieving that may be as simple as going down backwards and retrofiring your main drive, although it's rare that you see any fictional spacecraft doing that. The other thing you encounter with planets is their atmospheres, which you can use to your advantage both to slow down and to glide in laterally to a soft landing. But all that puts a lot of stress on your vehicle, plus you'll need a heat shield, flaps and landing legs, which represents a lot of extra mass and infrastructure that will be completely useless in deep space travel. It's kind of like a car with a caravan. The caravan means you can do certain things that other car drivers can't, but with a caravan, there's no way you're going to keep up with those other car drivers on the open highway, and nor will your fuel economy be as good. So the idea that you can have a deep space vehicle that also lands on planets and that can also do the Kessel Run in record time is pretty dubious. Ships that can break Kessel Run records will be ships that are purpose-built to break Kessel Run records, not some hybrid all-rounders. Furthermore, whatever technological marvels your ship may carry, there's still the fundamental issue of money or whatever the 24th century equivalent of money may be. To pick up supplies from a planet's surface, you first have to burn fuel to land, and then burn more fuel to get your ship and those new supplies back out of the gravity well again. So in a thriving space economy, it's very likely that all bulk trade will be done in orbit. Planets' governments might welcome visitors to the surface, but they probably wouldn't welcome those visitors coming in on foreign spacecraft with poorly maintained engines that might pollute the planet's atmosphere or even crash. So for anyone wanting to go down to the surface, there'd be various taxis and rental options. If you were determined to land your own vehicle, you'd probably need a permit and some kind of long-term registration to confirm your vehicle was adequately maintained and you'd probably need lots of insurance on top of all that. But okay, in the future, there really might be scout ships working out past the edges of civilization, exploring strange new worlds that don't have orbital depots or way stations. Those scout ships will be big and clunky, that is, not fast, but able to multitask both long-haul deep space travel and planetary landings. But it's still unlikely the whole ship will actually land. Those scout ships will either carry Star Trek-type shuttlecraft, or they'll be a component of the ship that can detach to become a lander, or of course we could just send the landers on ahead remotely and then rendezvous with them in a sleeker, faster personnel carrier. At the end of the day... It doesn't really matter how long it takes to send the machinery, but it does matter how long it takes to send the people. Of course, SpaceX is currently talking up the idea of flying their starship through deep space to land on Mars. 
To whatever extent that's possible, they still then have to launch off Mars again using locally resourced fuel, which is easier said than done. So maybe it will happen, but maybe it won't, for all the reasons we've outlined here. This is the end bit. So, there you go. Just like plane travel, the most complex parts of space travel are the lift-off and the landing, with the rest of it just involving going as fast as you can within fuel and propellant constraints. So, while everything could be achieved in one vehicle, that's unlikely to be an efficient solution, so anyone wanting to get from A to B faster and cheaper will probably opt for some kind of specialised component approach, involving launchers, orbiters, deep space transport solutions, and of course landers. So it will be more of a space transportation ecosystem. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you're just trying to find your place in the ecosystem, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll try and clear a path for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.